0: Good morning, you're very welcome. Brendan O'Connor in from Marion. And lots of the papers picking up various strands of that interview the Taoiseach gave on the show yesterday. The Sunday Times is leading with Varadka ready to probe Murphy double jobbing and this is about uh, what the Taoiseach said about establishing an independent inquiry into the former Fine Gael TD's doll attendances while he was working for the European People's Party. One source said, uh, you see, this, it could be more difficult than 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 people imagine. He's not a TD, he's not a candidate, we're not even sure he's still a member of the party. The Taoiseach has no power of sanction over him if he did not cooperate and it's not clear who does. Um, the Sunday Times also has FAI hopes to score state support for debt deals. So the FAI is to seek government support for a refinancing plan. So um, we'll see how that goes. Uh, the Sunday Independent Martin to Varadkar name date of election. So Fina Fall as you heard on the news there, have have confirmed that Michal Martin wrote to Leo Varadkar to demand he bring stability to the country, name a date for the next general election, step in and give some certainty, it's the responsible thing to do, end the speculation, agree a date for the dissolution of the Dáil and a date for holding the election. And they uh, quote... uh, uh, the Taoiseach again yesterday here saying he does talk about an orderly wind down of the government and I'm not sure what that means. And government sources also said that the Taoiseach had yet to read Mr. Martin's letter as he was at a European summit in Brussels last week. Stop laughing. Uh, and the the Sunday Independent also has Airbnb hosts at new risk of revenue audits. So it it's... um. They're going to launch a special audit crackdown, apparently, of the 12,000 Airbnb hosts in, in the country. So that I think they have had sent letters out to these people and have engaged with them in a way. But this, I think, represents a kind of a stepping up of it, which might suggest that they're not entirely happy with how all those 12,000 Airbnb people are managing their, their tax obligations. The Business Post, government fires opening salvo in post-Brexit battle. Uh, So now, you see, right, get Brexit done. And that was very simple, apparently. But this is just the beginning of it now. Irish fishermen will have to be allowed into British waters as a quid pro quo if Britain wants its financial firms and airlines to retain easy EU access after Brexit. And uh, Michael Creed has, has said that. Um, and you can imagine that there are probably about a thousand other such issues there that will all need to be discussed. Uh, the Business Post also has incompetence behind lack of on post state services. And that's um, an interview with David McRedman, head of on uh, post. And he's, it's government incompetence he's he's blaming. Uh, now, the Irish Mail on Sunday, we just heard there in the news about do, do not uh, drink the water from the Bailey Borough Supply, even if you boil it. Uh, so, Irish Water staff pocket 5 million in bonuses. Workers also share 1.4 million euro pay hikes two years in a row. Staff at Irish Water were paid nearly 5 million in performance related bonuses this year. As hundreds of thousands of people around the country were forced to boil their drinking water, and the mail also has an RT story: Sharon misses Nine O'Clock News as feud with her RTE boss reignites, and this is Sharon Violon. And RT do say inside is categorically untrue that uh, Sharon violon and and that Sharon and John, they say John is the is the said boss, have not spoken in a year. The Sunday World has that uh, awful story from Arklo, the stabbing of Nadine Lott. And The Sun and Sunday has that story too. The Irish Sunday Murr has brave Shane to go on the road again. Um, frail Pogues start to tour after late, late show appearance. So Shane McGowan is back in action. Victoria Mary Clark last night told The Irish Sunday Murr. It's great for him. He's recording and hopefully he'll be doing gigs next year. So new lease of life there for Shane. Uh, Daily Star on Sunday, Anton Dukwitz. So uh, this will matter a lot to some people. Anton Dubek, I think I'm pronouncing that right, says he is ready to waltz off Strictly Come Dancing. And I'll just read you the English papers because, uh, well, the Observer and the Telegraph anyway. Um, the Observer is leading with Corbyn. I take my share of responsibility for this defeat. So uh, that's Jeremy Corbyn has written a piece for The Observer where they they kind of say that this is the first time he's taken some responsibility because obviously he's blaming Brexit and he's he's blaming lots of other things. But he does say in it um, that I'm proud that we won the arguments. So I don't know how he sees that he won the arguments, but I guess it could it could be in a sense in the other story on the front of The Observer. PM pledges I'll reward my northern voters because this is this is i don't know if you've noticed this over the last twenty four forty eight hours but basically uh the Tories are are morphing into labor and throwing their arms around the north of england and um Boris Johnson was up there yesterday among his new people and there's 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 going to be a lot of changes so they're apparently going to uh raid an eighty billion fund infrastructure fund and they are going to uh, use it to say thank you to the people of northern england for for placing your trust in us. Now, the Sunday Telegraph, which I, I think we would all agree is uh, probably a good, a good, as good as we we'll get a barometer of, of what the thinking is at the moment, because, we, you know, there's a big question at the moment, which Boris are we going to get? What, is he going to go for softer Brexit? All this. So, The first thing is this, Dominic Cummings, uh, in in their lead story, PM's Whitehall Revolution to Guarantee People's Brexit. The first thing they say is that Dominic Cummings is to spearhead plans for radical reforms to the civil service. Dominic Cummings is on the record for a long time as saying that he basically wants to rout the civil service, not fit for purpose, bring in experts experts instead and, and, and all this kind of stuff. So it seems that... Contrary to what people thought, Dominic Cummings is here to stay and he is continuing on with with his grand project. He's now basically got got control of Downing Street, I guess. Separately, last night, Downing Street dismissed suggestions from Brussels and pro-Romain campaigners that the Prime Minister would angle for a closer trading relationship with the EU, having gained an 80-strong majority that ends his reliance on hardline Brexiteer MPs. We're not going to soften Brexit or negotiate some high alignment model, a source said. So, I mean, we have been thinking in this country that that might be what's going to happen now, but they certainly the Telegraph saying that is not happening now. Our panel today, uh, Dr. Pete Lund is a behavioural economist with the ESRI and a former assistant editor on the BBC's Newsnight. Ellen Coyne is head of politics at joe.ie. Podrigo Kajig is an independent senator and adjunct professor of entrepreneurship at NUIG. Gina London is a communications expert and a former CNN correspondent. And Eamon Malley is an author, journalist and broadcaster. Good morning, everybody, and you're all very welcome. So... um, Ellen, can, can I go to you first? Let's, let's talk about the domestic political scene first because we have our own drama going on here. So you were looking at that Sunday Times front page for ready to probe Murphy double jobbing.
1: Yeah, I think it's probably not a surprise that the interview from yesterday has featured so prominently on so many of the front pages today. I think from a who prides himself on his media appearances, it was not a particularly good outing from, for him. It was probably a better interview from your perspective or Ortiz. I think one of the few things that he got right in the interview was that there is a media obsession over speculating when the next election will be. Maybe I'm a bad journalist, but I've spent. The majority of the lifetime of this government working for a newspaper and there's been speculation about an election since 2016 and it's continuing today. I think what is much more interesting is what he was saying about Darren Murphy which is a splash for the Sunday Times today. The Taoiseach performs at his worst in interviews when he gets annoyed and I got the sense listening yesterday that he couldn't understand why you were asking him questions about Dara Murphy. I know that later on today we might get to the issue of compensation culture and I saw one of my colleagues saying that we used to assume that compensation culture was something that we associated from scroungers or chancers in society. It's something... Some of us are actually now starting to associate with government TDs because the sense of entitlement from Dara Murphy and this whole issue hasn't really been addressed or responded to properly. And as you said yourself when you were going through the papers this morning, there's no point really in the Taoiseach talking about having some inquiry or investigation now. He's not a TD anymore. Like, there's no way he can be held to account in a proper, open and transparent way for what happened. And I think what's worst of all is the Taoiseach doesn't seem to understand the scale of public anger towards him for it. I
0: I think he clearly does. In fairness, I think the the Taoiseach dealt with the issue yesterday. I mean, I I think it was generally agreed that the Taoiseach needed to deal with Verona Murphy and, and Dara Murphy before a campaign proper could come on. And I think the Taoiseach came in and and did that in fairness to him. I think you're being slightly um, harsh on him maybe. Padraig O'Kajic, what do you think? Um, first of
2: all, I heard the recording of the interview. I didn't hear it live. Uh, I thought it was a very profound yeah. interview. It was a very deep uh, interview and, and it was very, very challenging on the Taoiseach. Uh, he looked at time that he was unprepared. Okay, Attention I don't to want to get into everybody okay, so what what
0: specifically. Let's well, talk about the, the issues that arose out of it.
2: Okay, well in relation to the Dora Murphy issue, I actually think that the Taoiseach and the Fianna Fáil party were, if they weren't, they should have been aware about this a long, long before now and they should have dealt with it at that time. And if they did deal with it at the time when they were aware of it, which they were, and you brought that out in the interview, uh, it wouldn't be such an issue now.
0: Gina?
3: Based on some of the things that I've read in terms of when we've got a view of corruption or a view of abusing
0: the the uh, And the, there is no suggestion of corruption. Well, not here.
3: corruption per se, but the idea <clears> that this was unethical, <throat> that this wasn't that there was a loophole. Here's what here's my point. Now, Darren Murphy's not a TD as as Ellen was saying and you were making the point and the Taoiseach was making the point yesterday, but the way to really move forward before you do an election is to acknowledge and say that there's going to be some tightening of loopholes with this type of type of thing that Darren Murphy was able to avail of won't happen again.
0: And which which the T-shirt did say very early on, and all this. And then the, said, the proof need, is in the pudding need, to see if it actually gets it. done. Because yeah.
3: a lot of times in a time of crisis, the government's going to say, "Yeah, we're going to form a task force. We're going to look into this. We're going to make a hotline." And then as soon as the issue dies down, or they've moved on, they've got a date, and they're running on some other slogans. Then the issue never gets resolved. Case in point: How many times has the electoral college been talked about in the U.S. and it's never been resolved?
0: Pete Lunn.
4: Well, I always think it's kind of entertaining to watch what happens to leaders of political parties when members of their own parties misbehave and go a bit rogue um, we all love it it's a kind of personalized story all about you know noses in troughs and what they're up to and double jobbing and you know can we rely on these people it's it's great journalistic tittle tattle and i think for the political leaders it must just be deeply irritating I mean they've got huge issues to deal with really important issues they're trying to read briefs on them they're trying to make important decisions and instead they've got to deal and spend their time you know defending individuals who are getting up to no good
0: do you you not think that it's a question for people of of values and yes, that people yes. do think that it's not Ab- just tittle tattle is it? No, it isn't. People engage it because they think it's about values and what kind of values abso- do these people I have? I
4: absolutely agree with that, and that's why we jump onto those stories, because we really, really dislike the idea that people who are trying and supposed to be representing us are misbehaving in some way or are in it for themselves and are not actually representing us, and we're absolutely right about that. But I just think it's very, very difficult for political leaders because there's going to be some people who behave like that in all political parties, and they then have to sweep up. So where I was coming to is... My experience of watching this over the years is that the political leaders who deal with it best come down on misbehaviour in their own political parties like a ton of bricks. And that's what you've got to do because you've got to stamp it out because otherwise it comes back and bites you
0: like it's doing. Yeah, and the T-shirt did make the point yesterday that he has dealt with with a, lo- a lot of situations like this and deselected people where where their behaviour wasn't congruent with the values of the party. But
3: deselecting it- isn't enough, though, don't you think? That there needs to be some real tightening of the laws around what is allowed or isn't allowed, so you won't see something like this again. In the case of Dare Murphy, Verona Murphy is a different story. Y-
0: yeah, and again, I think they they, they did the T shirt did say very early on, in fairness, so I'm not going to sit here and defend the T shirt and all this, but he did say very early on, we do need to look at how how this works. Right, so the question also, becomes, will they? The, and the question is the rules, because we should stress again that Dara Murphy uh, as far as we know behaved within the rules That's it, that's the question it's the tightening of loopholes. Eamon Malley, what do you think?
5: Well, we're very familiar with all this sort of stuff, you know, but (laughs) these are allegations to which I couldn't possibly personally lend any credence, Uh, but in in the British Parliament, for example uh, there is an an oversight body a commission which uh, monitors all this behaviour of MPs and For example, Ian Paisley Jr., uh, was suspended for up to 10 weeks arising out of allegations of trips abroad etc. So it's it's, it's managed uh, quite carefully and seems to be quite effective. The policing and, and, body and is and there. We, we
0: do have a Dáil Ethics Committee and we have a Standards and Public Office um, body as well which does manage and look into these kinds of things. I think there's a kind of an unusual situation here in that mm. Darren Murphy is no longer um, subject to any of that.
5: I mean, that's a tricky one for, for the Taoiseach. Has he got control or has he not c- got control? Has anybody over got control over that situation? I don't know. Mm-hmm.
2: I, 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 I think the Taoiseach is acting with integrity. I think he's a genuine person. I think he's he's doing his best. But actually, I do think hindsight is twenty twenty. Something should have been done about this much earlier on when the Fine Gael party were very much aware of, let's call it double-jobbing. And also, as you said, Brendan, we cannot say that Darren Murphy has done anything wrong. He hasn't done anything illegal as far as we're aware. And
0: how, how damaging do you think it is to Fine Gael at the moment?
2: Um, I think it's, uh, it is uh, not good for Fine Gael, uh, but it's not catastrophic for Fine Gael. I think people are much more interested in, I think, the Sunday Times today. Uh, people are much more interested in, in relation to housing and in relation to hospitals and queues and stuff like that and traffic and all of that kind of thing yeah. than they are in relation to this. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think Eamon is right in relation to, say... or. Uh, uh, some okay. you said that the, you, it's 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 not it's not a key fundamental issue, but it
0: is a thing that possibly needed to be dealt with uh, and got off the table before we got into the court and trust of, of the election It's not a deal breaker in relation to an election, in my view. It's, so, in terms yeah. of the election, then um, the front page of the Sunday Independent, Martin Veradkar, named date of of election, and. Uh, Ellen, you've made your feelings clear on this. You think that this is tittle-tattle, as Pete Lone might call it, all this discussion. I wouldn't go
1: to... The, like, I mean, we know the government is coming to the end of its life. Like, we know it's going to happen. We know there's going to be an election next year. I just don't know what tangible difference it makes to normal people if it's in the second month of the year or the fifth. And I would be, I saw in, on the front page of the Sunday Independent further down, there is a Fine Gael source cautioning against rushing into an election just because of, I guess, the, the hangover or the excitement of the British one. Like Brexit is not done, dealt with and tied up in a bow. There's still major issues for Northern Ireland. So I think it would be silly to rush into it in February just because of what happened in the UK.
5: Eamon? I think it would be quite criminal at this point in time uh, for uh, an election to take place here. Purely from a selfish point of view, in terms of uh, any potential which obtains at this point in time about a restoration of an assembly and an, an executive stormer, there's no doubt about it. Simon Coveney is a very credible individual, a very safe pair of hands, he's encyclopedic on the whole question and the intricacies of the problems obtaining there, Julian Smith, the Secretary of State, is a relatively newcomer in ter- as a representative of the, of the British government. I think Boris Johnson. And is going Julian to Smith
0: leave. coming back? Do we I know think yet? He is. Yes, he I is. think he's okay.
5: going to be here certainly in the early stages. So if uh, an election kicks off down here. The eye will be off the ball up there, and there is a tenderness. Let me let me just underscore this: there is a tenderness in unionism and in loyalism in the wake of the general election. There, there's a vulnerability there, and I think that will have to be managed. And inattention to that could have consequences. So it's
0: not a question of that. Uh, on the 13th of of January, there's an assembly up and running by the deadline that we can uh, then take our attention off that. It's just nonsense.
5: It's just nonsense. That's not the real world. I can mean to say it took years to build the peace process, to get the Good Friday Agreement in place. These talks would be very, very difficult because the deal which obtained uh, on the 18th of February in 2018, w- from which the Democratic Unionist Party walked away, was a deal with Sinn Féin, which included an Irish language uh, uh, accommodation. That was proven to be unsellable within the Democratic Unionist Party. That party is much more vulnerable and wounded at this point in time. The possibility of selling uh, that particular deal, which is the deal that was on the table... It's going to be very challenging. Presumably,
0: presumably they're they're a bit they're going to be a bit more uh, open to buying, given their results in the election. They they must want to really want to get back into an assembly now. That's
5: a thesis, but that's fine in theory. Until you sit down at the table, there is very little trust obtaining, existing between the Democratic Unionists and Sinn Féin at this point. Very, very little. And the fact that Nigel does lost North Belfast is a hammer blow, a body blow to the Democratic Unionist Party. Uh, we'll be discussing uh, uh, Cummings's, Dominic Cummings, Cummings's uh, approach to the election and the focus groups, etc. The Democratic Unionist Party failed miserably to identify that within the heart of unionism, there was a very, very sizable remain vote. They miscalculated, they hadn't done their homework, and that vote basically damaged uh, the Democratic Unionist very, very very badly. And we'll discuss the various constituencies where the Alliance have jumped dramatically and uh, at the expense of the... Of so the,
0: are we seeing... A, a rush away from the extremes in Northern Ireland, and are we seeing a movement to the centre? Is it a post lyra McKee, new kind of I- less identity politics and more pragmatic politics?
5: I th- there's no scientific evidence to substantiate that, but I think that uh, there's a growing appreciation of civility uh, in, in politics in Northern Ireland. I think the Alliance Party represents that civility and also uh, an acknowledgement for, uh, that, the, uh, that the Alliance particularly uh, is interested in parity of esteem, equality for all. That has been missing in, in the democratic thinking and that's why we don't have an executive on an assembly. The democratic unionists and unionism st- still hasn't got to the point where parity of esteem is part of their psyche, of their way of thinking. That's why we have no administration in Northern Ireland at this moment in time.
0: Mm. Ellen, you've been up spending some time with with younger unionists yes. in, in in Northern Ireland, and and what what are your findings?
1: Yeah, so uh, we went up to Belfast to speak to some young unionists, and it definitely isn't enough to account, account for the entire DUP result. But I think it's worth mentioning. We were speaking to one young woman called Sarah, who came from a strong unionist background, would have described herself as British her entire life, and never would have even considered uh, the possibility of Irish unification in her lifetime. But over the past three years, she's started to feel distinctly less British there's a frustration there because she thinks that a lot of her um a lot of her kind of friends and colleagues would feel the same way but while those people are feeling more betrayed by the uk um less british starting to actually entertain the idea of united ireland the only version of unionism they're seeing represented in irish and british media is a caricature they think which is associated with values that they can't can't uh, can't align themselves to at all like the views on marriage equality the views on women's Mm. reproductive rights and uh, you know they're starting to think that their future might be better in United Ireland than remaining part of the UK and I think when we watch the rhetoric from, uh, from some of those in the Westminster government you can understand why people feel that way Pete? Yeah
4: I think this stuff's really interesting I mean the historian Norman Davis wrote about 20 years ago a book where he predicted the breakup of the United Kingdom following devolution under the new Labour government at the end of the 1990s. And I wouldn't go as far as say almost everything Professor Davis wrote is coming true, but a hell of a lot of it is. And what's happening is that the identities of the United Kingdom are all starting to diverge in different ways. And I think that's happening in Northern Ireland from my experience of going up there. I spent some time up there. You know, I think identities are diverging within these islands. Um, and you, you know, we may get on to talking about Scotland. I hope we do. I think it's a fascinating part of what's happened in the yeah, UK election and isn't getting enough attention. But I see that in Northern Ireland, too. I think there are new identities forging that are diverging away from London and diverging away from the old conservatism that kind of held the union together. And where that ends up, I really, really don't know. But I also think what's interesting in that new identity is I think the kind of, that both Sinn Féin and the DUP got a degree of punishment at this election for not taking responsibility for the, the assembly not being there and people have moved mm, towards the center party as a form of punishment and that new if people are trying to forge a new identity they're not going to identify with that old division they're going to look for something different and that is starting to happen right across these islands and it's fascinating
0: yeah and of course Brexit was mixed in there as well as yeah, a kind sure. of a, as a kind of an interference factor in wh- ho- however you might read these results in sectarian terms or otherwise, Brexit is in there as a distorting factor as well, isn't it?
5: I accept that entirely. And uh, it has resulted in this uh increased or up the ante in terms of uh, this whole uh, imminent border poll and United Isles, this talk has become much louder uh, within republicanism, et and yeah, I th- And I think the Taoiseach was very, very firm
0: yesterday that he does not see that as being some responsible thing to do right now or an appropriate thing to get involved in right now.
5: Well, uh, I think that uh, even within broad nationalism, there's a fatigue uh, now setting in uh, with all this chuck-ear-la, chuck la habitual repetition of this term and uh, a border pole, a border pole, a border pole. And, you know, it's, it's, it's almost um, old language in many ways. It's a bit like Arlene Foster introducing the notion of pan-nationalism being the reason why John Falucan of Sinn Féin won the seat in in North Belfast. The first pact which was put in place f- for this election, was uh, a pact between the Ulster Unionists and the Democratic Unionist Party in North Belfast, where the Ulster Unionists said, we will stand to make sure Dodds wins the seat. So could you call that pan-unionism? So there, there are these contradictions all the time at yeah. play.
0: And of course, it, it has been pointed out, oh, I think Owen Harris is mentioning it today, Newton Emerson is mentioning it, that Sinn Féin had a worse election than than the DUP. Yes. And like In a sense, it's almost as, as if what, what you're saying, Eamon, is that these people have had their time, time's up on this kind of thinking and that there's less and less patience uh, uh, for it. Gina, what do you think?
3: Well, there's an interesting observation that I see I guess paralleling what you were the three of you were talking just now about the divergence of identity and some of the chasms that are being constructed around what happened in the in the UK, what's happening in Northern Ireland. And then the contrast of that in some ways is the three and a half years that the that the two major parties in the Republic of Ireland have actually cooperated to a large degree. And we talk about values and talking about okay, should we have the election in February, have the election in May? The ability for this country to stay together in the midst of a lot of chaos going around it actually I think bodes very well for this republic and for the example that it sets and Eamon mentioned Simon Coveney and to a large degree too of course the, the Taoiseach himself how they are standing firm and solid together even with Michal Martin I, I, I think there's they, something they to attest, attest
0: for that during their bit so the this, this centre as Pascal Donahue said the centre must hold here and, and the centre is holding Well.
2: Yeah, Brendan, what, what happened in the south here, Jane, is that the politicians put the country first right? yeah. sense, yes. and, and, yeah. and, and their parties first. And I would say hats off to uh, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil and Micheál Martin probably in particular, because he had significant internal challenges, because there were people within Fianna Fáil who said, hold on here a second, we're not in government, we're not in opposition. But he actually went and he ran with it, and I, I think that's great credit but, but to him. But of it. course,
0: you you could be more cynical and argue that Fianna Fáil had a point to prove about that we can be responsible and to and to maybe put to bed some of the the reputation, uh, the justified reputation that the party has had in the past for not being responsible.
2: Yeah, I'd agree with, with your comment in relation to justified uh, responsibility. But in actual fact, they drew a line in the sand. And from what I can see and from the past three and a half years, and my history has not been in politics, as you know, but the three and a half years has, uh, they have tried to work together as best I could to put the country first. Uh, one thing, I don't think we should have a general election before April or May. Uh, I think everybody here around the table agrees with that in Northern Ireland.
0: It's very interesting. Well, Is that that'll a, be important to them then. That <laughs> Yeah, I That will feed into I, the thinking. I, I, I they're I believe, take that on board, <laughs> aren't we they? We should the write panel. a letter and you can all sign it. A, and, 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 and this send one it Leo will to read. To the Irish Times. <laughs> and he'll read this
2: yeah. one. But in Northern Ireland, it's interesting. I believe uh, that, as as my colleagues Caesar, have said, that both Sinn Féin and DUP have got a kick in the ass here. Yeah. Uh, like, I just ran out some figures on this um, and they are gone more central. The SDLP in South Belfast increased their vote by 31%, DUP down 5%. In West Belfast, um, Sinn Fein Paul Massey is down 13%. In the Lagan Valley, Jeffrey Donaldson, Donaldson was down 16%, and Alliance, Sirke Eastwood, gained 17%. Uh, in Foyle, and Car- Derry, Uh, Column Eastwood from SDLP increased the SDLP vote by 18% and Sinn Féin are down 19%. So we're going more and more to the pacifist parties. And I believe in Northern Ireland, people are saying, OK, we want to move away from the violence. We want to go away from extremism. And actually, we want uh, a storm that actually works and you guys negotiate and work politically together. And I think that was a good kick in the ass that was needed.
0: Yeah, and, and Sinn Féin got a kick in the ass, but Pat Finucane did did um, beat Nigel. Dodge. Yeah, well,
2: Eamon, you and I had a very interesting conversation mm-hmm. just before yeah. uh, 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 the programme started. Yeah. Yeah.
5: Um, you know, people say the SDLP hasn't ever entered into any pact as such in the past. The SDLP didn't stand in for Manus to against Bobby Sands at the time of the hunger strike, uh, which I think is significant. Now, Colum Eastwood was out of the traps firstly and said... People of North Belfast want us to uh, make sure that Duds doesn't win. And that's how John Finucane secured his home run. But I was talking to a very staunch STLP woman in South Belfast, a woman I know wouldn't have ever, at, at any point in time, considered voting for Sinn Féin. She said to me, she said, I want Mrs Finucane to have a win. She has suffered enough, Geraldine Finucane, who lost her husband Mm -hmm. and hasn't got justice all these years later. And she said, the second thing she said, I want Brexiteers out, I want Dodds out, she said. I will skip the length of the Lisbon road, she said, if John Finucane wins. Now, this is a staunch SDLP supporter. It was a remarkable remark. And, and of course, look,
0: similar things happening all over the UK, people thinking that that they were... you know, generations of families voted Labour and people, at the, the quivering pen, as Boris called it. And we'll, we'll come to that. But first, let's take a quick break.
4: Podcast, the Show, at rte.ie/radio.
0: Welcome back. Our panel, uh, Pete Lunn, Ellen Coyne, Portugal Kajig, Gina London and Eamon Malley. And we'll move on now to UK politics, I thought one of the kind of fascinating things, uh, there's, there's a lot of really interesting stuff about what's gone on over, over the, the, the past week and the past few days in the UK. I thought one of the interesting things was uh, if anyone watched the Cambridge Analytica documentary, and it, it, it is absolutely mind blowing about how how Brexit was won, how that became the playbook for Trump. How few people you need to target and target hard in specific locations, how much they know about who's voting where and everything else. And how, how easy it is not to fix an election, but how easy it can be to win an election with data. And um, The Telegraph have, have a piece today. Pete Lohner is a behavioural economist. So they're, they're saying there was a strategy borrowed from the vote leave. Um, campaign, and they also talk about these online attack adverts that, that were p- people in the north of England, certain places, pummeled with about how much Jeremy Corbyn was going to cost them. So is this, is this the genius of Dominic Cummings again, manipulating uh, elections?
4: No, it's exaggerated nonsense.
0: Is it? <laughs> really?
4: <laughs> yes, it's exaggerated nonsense. Let me tell you why it's exaggerated nonsense. Uh, what happened in this UK election is Boris Johnson got 1.2 percentage points more of the vote than Theresa May got. And all of a sudden, the Telegraph in particular, of course, because it's doing a victory dance, is talking as if he's some kind of political genius and all the people who backed well, him. Well, I think the th-
0: Cummings is a genius, no, but, really. but no, it's
4: just not true. I mean, fewer than 300,000 additional people in the United Kingdom voted for Boris Johnson than voted for Theresa May who was considered to be one of the most unpopular prime ministers the UK has ever had, and then
0: suddenly everyone's facing Boris Johnson. But this Pete election, Lund, were they not the right 300,000 people? You can make Maybe that, they right. were the 300,000 people in, you can the, make re- that, in you, the Red Wall. Yeah, you can make that argument. I think the Tories fought
4: a decent campaign because they did two smart things. They got Brexit down to a slogan that people identified with, even though it wasn't true, and I won't repeat it because everyone knows what it is. And they also banged on about putting money into public services because they knew that was their weak point and that people didn't trust them. So they fought a good, actually very traditional campaign that was mostly fought on television. Right, so there's an awful lot of exaggerated nonsense being talked about, brilliance and, you know, targeting and all this kind of... Stuff. And it is, it, it is exaggerated nonsense, right? It. The reason this election result came out the way it came out is because the Labour vote went down by eight percentage points. And when the main opposition vote goes down by eight percentage points, they get creamed under the UK electoral system. So there's no Boris and Dominic Cummings genius geniuses here. Labour lost this election. More than half of the Labour vote went to the Liberal Democrats. And because of the electoral system, they got no extra seats for it. Yeah, yeah. As much as the, the, the Labour
0: Democrats got, what, 14% of the vote? So
4: they got of the 8% that Labour lost, more than I think it was 4.2% of it went to the Liberal Democrats, who then got no seats for it. More of the Labour vote went to the Brexit Party than went to the Conservatives. So all this stuff about the Conservatives brilliantly targeting people in the Northern England is hogwash. It's the it's the telegraph doing a victory dance, and we're all
0: buying it. It's not true. Okay. It's less than 300,000 people. <laughs> yeah, but and I, and I thought the whole point of these things is, mm-hmm. that they, is that they target a small amount of people to get massive results. Well, look, and I mean, that's if you want to argue Cummins that those are the key 300,000 people... To win in, right. in the Brexit. You can,
4: if you want to argue those are the three, key 300,000 people, you can make that argument. But I don't think that argument is right. The key is that four percentage points of the Labour vote disappeared off to the Liberal Democrats and consequently cost them an election. Okay. A bunch of mind. others went to the Greens, almost as many as to the Tories.
1: It is true that the support for the Tories didn't change dramatically from the start of the campaign to the end. So you can't give that much praise to the Tory strategist. However, This new method of targeting people, particularly online, is really relevant specifically for us in Ireland. There's an article in The Telegraph about it today on page two which talks about these online ads which repeated that slogan, uh, which kind of hammered uh, the Labour incumbents spoke about how many times they voted to block Brexit. What that article doesn't mention, which is particularly important, is that the Coalition for Reform in Political Advertising last week released a report which said that 88% of the Conservative Party's most widely promoted adverts on Facebook featured claims which had been flagged as either not correct or not entirely correct. This is being run on platforms which are based in Ireland because of our corporate tax rate and we're coming up to an Irish general election where as we can see issues like direct provision are becoming more politicised for the first time and we have zero regulation on misinformation that's being spread Are we going to
0: see this stuff in in this election here? Have we seen much of it in the past? Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, if we look back to the referendum on the Eighth Amendment we remember that a few weeks after that Facebook and Google actually suspended their political adverts worldwide because of what was happening in Ireland. There was misinformation being spread and we seen micro examples of it before it was happening. from abroad
0: largely was not it was
1: it? it was yeah it was from it was actually from a group that was uh, organized in the vote leave campaign so when it ha- when it comes to an election it's going to be much more targeted and we have to realize that misinformation has been happening organically in ireland over the past few weeks or years we saw it with the anti-vaccination campaign we're seeing we don't have to go into it but we're seeing it at the moment with a misinformation campaign against sex education reforms and i think while those sorts of politics are being whipped up in ireland um, and we're going to go into a general election where direct provision and immigration is going to be much more politicised than we've ever seen before. Ireland has a responsibility to regulate online advertising, not just for ourselves, but for other countries in Europe as well, because of the companies that are based here.
0: Okay, now, Gina London, on on a kind of a slightly related note, um, you're looking, I know, at Niall Ferguson in the Sunday Times today. And Niall Ferguson is great, but he is admitting in the Sunday Times, today last week, he wrote a very uh, kind of slightly uh, pessimistic piece, I would say, from his point of view, saying everybody thinks the Tories are going to win. But you've got to look at the social media side of things. Corbyn has way more followers on Twitter, etc., etc., And he had all these metrics about social media and was saying this is all going to come out in the election and Labour actually could win it. And he's saying this week I was wrong.
3: Well, there's a couple of things that I think that are that Pete, that Peter and Ellen are both talking about, and, and that Niall mentions as well. And I want to also bring in Lucinda Crichton, who wrote a piece on the strategy, then or lack thereof, or what was the reason that Boris Johnson got elected in uh, the Business Post today on page 24. And this is the idea that regardless of the platform or who's driving it, it's the slogan. It's the is it misinformation or is it complexity or is it simple and The simplicity of messages is what's reaching to the emotion, this behavior that drives people out. People in the UK wanted change. They wanted to feel like they were back in control of their lives. They wanted to feel like like they were able to take back their nation. And the simplicity of what Boris Johnson was saying, he's a flawed individual just like Donald Trump, but he has simple slogans and he has charisma, whereas the Labour Party... They largely let the Lib Dems handle the Brexit question. They were pretty neutral on it. And the Lib Dems' response was, well, remain status quo. That's not change. That's not a simple slogan. That's not something that people get get emotionally behind. So whether or not it's on social media or whether or not it's misinformation, if it's simple and it's emotionally driven... It is going to resonate if you can tap into what that emotion is. And that's what a lot of the parties that are losing elections, Democrats in the U.S., Labour in the U.K., potentially the back and forth that's going on in Northern Ireland, are missing.
0: So that what they need to do is, if instead of giving out about populism and how they simplify things and everything... Everybody needs to bring things down to three words is what you're saying. I stop kind finger of, wagging. Kind
3: of it. I am because the manifesto and all the details and all this and back to Hillary Clinton but like all her details. So it, if you're
0: not... we not be getting to a terrible place I, then, you know London, what, it's if it's al- just people shouting slogans it's at always been, each other? Have we beyond al-
3: that? We, have we? Because it's... Look, who's, who are the most popular people on, on the internet and the influencers these days? Kardashians, uh, J- James Charles. These types of popular, emotionally engaging people are the ones people are going to follow. It's often an election of charisma. Now I I can put in Simon Coveney as a guy who's not super charismatic but is encyclopedic and people do trust that and so can you start with charisma and then earn trust? I hope so because that's certainly what I advocate in my leadership communications but if you can be simplistic and positive
0: that's a key. Can I I just interrupt you there? Do you think Boris Johnson was a triumph of charisma over trust? That it didn't matter that a lot of people didn't Yeah, I think think in this. Well,
3: it's not just the fun, but it's also capturing. Don't forget, it's the. A lot of the voters that came out that went away from the Labour were because there was this Anglo British nationalism that is at play, and he was able to capture on that. I'm not saying it's simple slogans that are positive. His were simple slogans that put up forward the alienation and the fear that a lot of people felt. But. It is that oversimplistic message, build the wall, lock her up, that people will galvanize. And when they say one thing to the polls, and they say something to the pollster, and then they go behind and put their vote in, there are two different things. And- Obviously, leaving the EU and get Brexit done are two different things, and there's a lot of devil in those details. But it was enough to win the election.
0: And I see Donald Trump has taken Boris Johnson's victory as a sign that Donald Trump is going to win next year with what, whatever locker up or whatever whatever he has going on next year. I see the Democrats as well are looking very carefully at what happened to Corbyn and saying, We'd be nuts to go. Well, on, there's to, an to interesting a an, a
3: po- in a different way for a Niall Ferguson's piece about how it was conservative and it was, this na- it was this national wave that led him. I wonder if there might have not been a strong enough simplistic message from Labour to oppose and say, what if we're going to do a social revolution and rebuild democracy? That might have been something that would have galvanized voters to come out, but they didn't, and Labour lost. Mm. Padre, okay, do you think uh, we need uh,
0: to simplify down politics in this country?
3: Uh...
2: Yeah, we could simplify politics, Brendan, in lots of ways. But I think what we're missing here is the key point. I think we're underestimating the intelligence of the voter here. And I do believe that actually voters do think through. And it's one or two things for voters. Either they trust somebody more or they fear somebody less. And probably in the UK, they probably feared Boris Johnson less than they feared Jeremy Corbyn. But is that thinking frankly. through or
3: is that gut emotion? Mm-hmm.
2: Um, a lot of that, if you want to go into talking about amygdala and so on, that's and... and uh, Fight, uh, fight and f- flight and freeze that could be a factor in it but I think uh, it's like, probably
0: an informed gut isn't it yeah,
2: I, think so I think it's an informed gut
4: some of it's thinking it through it is I mean Jeremy Corbyn's going on about nationalisation when we face huge issues You're of mi- dead right, of huge issues of migration climate change mm-hmm. digitisation he's not talking about them he's talking about an old fight from the 1980s and the British electorate was smart enough to see that 100% and did not want him as Prime Minister
2: and the Irish electorate are exactly the same way they will think through they will look on, on Twitter are you on Twitter? That's a very personal question.
0: <laughs> but Brendan, you'll answer my question.
3: <laughs> I, well, it
0: depends what you mean by on Twitter. I might lurk again. I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to talk about That's a political <laughs> answer.
3: Give your Twitter handle <laughs> up right now, Brendan.
2: No, but seriously, I actually think people look on Twitter and they see it. OK, yeah, it's something out there. But when something that really, really affects them, they actually think a lot more deeply about it and they make, it, they make an informed decision based on the best information they can get. And actually, I think, back again to, to your, your, your point, Pete, uh, you're right, Labour lost 8%. Liberal, Liberal Democrats gained 4% and Joe Swinson lost her seat and they went from 12 seats down to 11. So that is. So uh, there's a lot more at play here than social media, in my view. Eamon Malley.
5: There was another point which I think has been missed. Um... Boris's boat operandi was very interesting. He was constantly on the run, on the move. He didn't allow anyone to pin him down. He didn't put himself in front of Andrew Neil, for example, the the Rottweiler of interviewers. (laughs) He kept on the run. He fired off these cliches, get the deal done, bang, but no close encounter. That was quite a smart trick for him.
0: Alan Coyne, are we underestimating the, the voters here?
1: Um, I think the one thing that probably is being lost is, in terms of the voters, is what happened with young people. I think the last UK general election in 2017 was the first time that age instead of class became more of an indicator of how people vote. And if you look at the breakdown of what happened, people between between mm-hmm. the ages of 18 and 34 uh, supported Jeremy Corbyn. And that wasn't supporting Labour, that was supporting socialism. Um, And there was a very clear gender divide where you got up to the ages of over 65 and they were around 65% supporting the Tories. So I wonder now when we're talking about national splits, what's going to happen to all of those young people who might feel abandoned when Labour inevitably probably, from their point of view, hopefully replace Corbyn with somebody who's harking back more to a Blair style of Labour, and they're left feeling totally abandoned, not only by the British government, but by the party that they, they got behind. They will owned.
0: have Boris Johnson putting his arms around them all and, and, <laughs> and pumping money up the north. And, and, and the and Conservatives it, it, will
2: reinvent themselves
0: to keep they, those but people. But this is, it's been explicitly stated, hasn't exactly. it? Boris Johnson has gathered the, the troops and said, we are a different party yeah, now. 100%. I, I, I,
5: yeah.
0: um, but I suppose a lot of... Uh, You know, that's all very interesting for us. But the reality is that uh, what our concern here now is what class of a a Brexit deal we get. Um, Who who was looking at uh, Britain on Collision Course with EU over trade rules, the Tim Shipman piece? Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, Pete.
4: Yeah, I, I, I think we can take some comfort from this. I mean you know i would not be a fan of boris johnson for very many reasons but i think the size of this majority does mean that he can do the thing that governments can classically do which is you know make some errors and have some problems early in the piece and then try and recover it later in the electoral term and that actually for us is helpful because I think it makes a soft Brexit more likely. I think Mm. it means that he can Mm. delay the transition period and sure he'll take some political damage for doing that and he'll take some heat from the right wing of the Tory party for doing that but he can probably get away with it because he's got a large enough majority that he can look to recover it through the domestic agenda in the latter half of his electoral term. So I think from our point of view what everyone thinks about the poor old UK and I left there 20 years ago and I'm much happier being here watching what's (laughs) going on over there but I think from our point of view actually him having a solid majority is probably a good because if he didn't the chances we get back into cliff edges and brinkmanship with potential collateral damage for us would be much higher no
0: the argument is being made though that the the uh, the people who were uh, expelled from the party none of them got their mm. seats back mm. all the new um, Tory MPs are largely brexiteers and mm. they have all signed a pledge haven't they and everything so sure. some people are saying we're looking at a yeah. more That's true, but but I
4: know some of those Brexiteers, and I can absolutely tell you that the detail of trade negotiations is not what floats their boat. An awful lot of this is semiotics, it's playground politics about nationalism, and if quietly a soft Brexit goes through that doesn't look like a soft Brexit, with a lot of bluster that accompanies it, with them gaining the power and
0: the political advantage from it, they'll be more than happy. Padraig O'Katey, do you think we're looking at a soft Brexit
2: I think we're looking at a softer Brexit than we were before the general election because uh, Boris Johnson now doesn't have the uh, the tail wagging the dog, as it were. Plus, also, I believe that he d- he's, not, he's not as dependent. I think before he had a different scenario. He was playing to a different uh, um, soundcheck, as it were. He, he had to keep the very strong far right wing with him uh, in order just to keep in power to get to a general election. Now he's not dependent on those. And as we said earlier, he's going to veer towards the more the moderate Labour uh, supporter as well. So I think we're going to have a softer Brexit. We're going to have a softer Conservative Party. And that's all. You're so right. And that's I all in have, our as, interest.
0: As Dan O'Brien, I think, is pointing out today in The Independent, uh, the Tories now represent North of England constituencies that have a lot of uh, manufacturing mm-hmm. with a lot of complicated supply chains with Europe and that those guys are not going to want to, to uh, do that to their own doorsteps. And, um, Gina London, it's funny, isn't it, how uh, what would have been our worst nightmare, we thought, six months, a year ago... Uh, Boris Johnson incomplete control. Brexit is happening. There almost seems to be, though, in this country as well, a sense of kind of relief or glad of certainty. Well, I think that's what the word I done. was going to use
3: too is. I think that after three and a half years of holding your breath about what's going to happen, in small businesses here and in large businesses too, and of course, Irish Protocol finally got in the last minute. But now the. The exhale of oh my gosh, let's now look at the cards on the table and see if we can help figure out the deal. But but like we're not looking we, at
0: certainty now. Well, we?
3: that's the well now. There's the reality as I mentioned. Getting out of the EU is one thing, and then getting an FTA and getting the mystical Irish sea border actually figured out and where are the fisheries going to go and what are supply chains and customs in Northern Ireland and all these costs that are associated. I actually think it is going to be a softer Brexit, but I think it's still going to be a hard Brexit because he's got the specter of what happens with Scotland over. He's not going to have a big mandate of suddenly Nicola Sturgeon and the gang says, you know what, we're voting to separate. Now what's he going to do? And are they going to be negotiating themselves back in the EU while... The Britain is trying to negotiate itself out. I think it's actually real, real complexity so, so, now.
0: So suggesting that, that if he wants to hold on to Scotland... Speed is of the essence. So speed implies a softer Brexit where he maintains alignment and it can be done quickly. Pete, what do you reckon? Yeah, I I think there's probably some truth in that. There is still uncertainty there. Of course there is.
4: But it's less than it was. And it's actually less if there had been a different election result. You mentioned
0: earlier that you think Scotland is a big story that's not being talked about enough. Uh,
4: Yeah, I I, I really, really do. I mean, I think what Scotland tells you (coughs) is not actually that Scottish people are diverging from English people massively. What it tells you is what might have happened to Boris Johnson had there been a reasonable centre-left opposition... Because you've got to bear in mind that what the SNP have done over a period of about 30 or 40 years now is position themselves as an alternative social democratic political force in Scotland and Scottish voters have flocked to them because that has been lacking for them. Uh, Of course the Scots have a real problem with the modern Tory party and have ever since Margaret Thatcher's years and that's helping hugely. So it's not so much a divergence as they have a genuine alternative. Now I would really worry that... The Tory party are so out of touch in Scotland. I, I say worry because I, I'm concerned about the breakup of the UK and I'm concerned about what happens if Scotland go independent. It could be a good thing, it could be a bad thing. I don't know, but I'm concerned about it. Because when nationalism appears in politics and redraws boundaries and constitutions, usually there is big trouble. And it's really hard to make that happen without big trouble. And I think there could well be big trouble inside three years. And the and reason you, I think that is... Are we
0: looking at an upswing in nationalism in, the, in England, do you think, and also in Scotland?
4: Yeah, because what what what, happen, what happens is when nationalism becomes a key focus of politics so that you're identified by your group membership and your background, politics becomes more visceral and usually, usually more unpleasant. And I think there's a real risk of that. I think the 2021 elections in Scotland will be absolutely vital in that because if the SNP do well again in that then the call for
0: Indy Ref 2 becomes almost impossible to fight. okay. Um, I I need to take a break now. But first, I just want to say that I I apologise. I misspoke earlier there. I should have said, of course, it was John Finucane who unseated Nigel Dodds. Okay, we'll take a break. Welcome back. And our panel are still with us. Pete Lunn, Ellen Coyne, Podrigo Cage, Gina London and Eamon Malley. Uh, Gina London, one of the things that I think we've all been kind of f- fascinated by all week is that awful story um, in, in New Zealand. And I mean, it does sound like some of the people who who were rescued and who survived from from that volcano really, in a way, would have been better off not, not surviving. It sounded well, that's like, the... Like, like what
3: kind of survival is it yeah. to be covered with massive burns across your body and what kind of pain and what kind of anguish and what kind of possible surgeries even to come back and be able to articulate. I mean, I can only imagine, and the stories that are coming out of that are devastating. I was in New Zealand, actually, just a a summer ago and didn't go to the volcano area, but you see that lovely terrain. But in 2016, my whole family went together for a holiday during the Christmas break to Hawaii, and we did take a helicopter tour of the Hawaiian National Park, Volcano National Park there in Mauna Loa. And as you're going across, and this is active, volcano, and you can see the lava flow, and you can see some of the, the, as it goes into the ocean, and it spurts up in the steam, and he was, the driver of the the pilot, rather, of the of the helicopter was explaining to us how much they need to stay away from it, and how important it is that just one small fraction of a change of the splatter or of the lava flows and the steam of it could endanger the helicopter. You didn't think, as you're booking a little holiday tour, that it's mm-hmm. that, that, potentially devastating but it is and not long after that there actually was a a boat that was in the water that there was a lava flow that came down and nearly capsized that boat so you can imagine then in the new zealand situation how people who were going on holiday and were not maybe given the same sorts of protection around
0: it were led to their demise you think people because because we we all look at it now and go they should or have they known better either. Yeah, you think people just don't think sometimes No, of course in not because if there's
3: they if they're if doing a, this exactly if there's a tourism around it if there's if you go to the theme park all the roller coasters are safe right if yeah. you go to the the helicopter tour or the boat tour of the of the volcano well they've been doing it for weeks and months and years and everything should be fine but not always
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, um I want to go back to the papers for a minute because there were there were a few we we got caught up a lot in in uh, in the big stories, but there were a few other stories that we wanted to get to Uh Potter, you wanted to talk about this. There's a great story on page three of the Sunday Times. McGinley tees up Croke Park to host golf project and there's a fantastic picture which is not Croke Park as it turns out but it's a guy he seems to be teeing off from high up in a stadium and there seems to be a load of greens laid out below in the stadium and it's kind of stadium golf situation and McGinley is bringing it to Croke Park. Looks good. In the off season we should have had. Well fair
2: play to him and hopefully there'll be no replays uh, at that time when, when he's coming. Um as it happens, <coughs> I'm a, a board member of Crow Park, of Crow Park, uh, Park Shorintha, and uh, it certainly has not come to our attention in the board of any requests like this. So it may have been spoken about at some managerial level, but certainly first I became aware of it when I saw it in the newspaper today. W- would you be up for it? Oh, my God. Uh, I would need to know a lot more about it, to be honest with you, and I need to make sure, like Crow Park there, it's an iconic world stadium, one of the best stadiums in the world. Uh, 83,500 people and uh, all the more reason why people would love to well, stand up well, near well, quite the quite frankly it needs to be it, it needs to be assessed there. Crow Park is used quite extensively it's used actually uh, more or less twice as frequently as the Aviva Stadium for example and we bring in kids there at different times of the year and so on and so forth so it's something I'm sure that management will consider and if they felt it was worthwhile that probably brings the board for debate but certainly yeah. hasn't got
0: there yet okay so you're not expressing a uh, a yes or a no on that no I'm not you because need, I don't know I enough know about more. it Brendan but, but you see we were just talking about this earlier it's not about the details anymore get golf done you've seen the picture you've seen the picture it looks good let, let, let's go with it well now, would you, you would do. you bring it to Parky Cueve as uh, a parkman? I, given that I am not on the board of Parky Queen <laughs> yet, yet um, yes. I, 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 I won't Blonde. give an answer on that okay. well, no you know that there's no actual hitting of balls down on the stadium they hit the they just drive the they ball just down the as far as I understand there's no potting or anything and it's whoever gets closest to the to the hole yeah no with, I was is that, uh, you see, that I, swaying I,
2: you I don't uh, that's, I, that shows how <laughs> ignorant I am of the whole lot I I I, I wasn't aware of that but uh, it's certainly something that uh if it went to board, it's something we need to consider and we'd obviously get a paper on it to reflect on it.
5: Amen. No, it's just that I, I, this is one of the stories, the offbeat stories, which I wanted to raise and I happen to say I really like this story about Crook Park becoming a golf course and, yeah, man said, I'm on the board It's not an issue This is not, this is not true at all So <laughs> Fake and, news And that, and that news. question The question which he's just put to you Would you bring it to Parker Kiev? I think that reflects where he stands Where Podrick stands on this whole issue Well I,
0: I think he's starting more fake news then <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the historic, uh, So where do you think and, I stand By the way anything? we are not saying that the Sunday Times story don't is. don't sound too sympathetic to me that, We're saying they haven't told the board yet And we can see why you know, They're going to need to butter up the, the, the board a bit more uh, sp- Speaking of um of uh, visionary projects for for Dublin um there's a there's a great profile in the business post of of Owen keegan today going against the the tide and it's interesting on a lot of levels but Jean, I suppose the the kind of spur for it was the whitewater rafting uh in in Dublin which uh, for some reason, is a story that people are fascinated by. Well, and by. who
3: knew that the head of Dublin City Council was a big canoeist himself. And so Mr. Owen Keegan features very widely. I didn't know, but he says that they say that it, this is not something that he's pushing through, in fact. But that the crux of the whole article is it goes through the different varying pros and cons around the, the whitewater rafting uh, obstacle course or what have you, that they really do think that this might be a call for why there might need to be an elected mayor of Dublin and why there should be a visionary leader for Dublin. And certainly, as we can all attest around the table around different varying elections and the results of those elections, that visionary leadership is certainly something that is in demand.
0: You're nodding, Alan Coyne, you think we need a directly elected mayor in Dublin?
1: Yeah, I think um, that's kind of what the Sunday Business Post piece, t- sorry, Business Post piece touched on um, and I think that uh, I don't want to do a Jerry Corbyn and mistake my social media timeline for the sentiment of the entire country, but I think when the Whitewater Rafting project was announced, there was a huge amount of palpable fury from young people living in Dublin who are worried that the city is basically turning into a trip advisor list and being more hospitable for tourists or richer people living here and not very hospitable for young people who want to live here as well. Obviously, that's connected to the rental crisis. But I think... But is it
0: one or the other? Can we not have good tourist attractions? Yeah, and, of course and, you can. And, but I think people think that
1: the priorities is tipping too far the other way. And I know that you can't conflate it with housing because of the 22 or 23 million that was used for this couldn't have been used for housing is my understanding. It would have had to be sports or tourism. But if you're looking at a project um, around that area of George's Dock, which, you know, is it's the north inner city, I think that sports and recreation focused more on younger people would have been better because I... I live in that area and I think when you cross the Lewis line from Amien Street over towards the IFSC, it's like being in two completely different cities. And I think that's why there was so much uproar about it. People felt like it was an alien decision. They didn't know who wanted it and they didn't really know who it was going to benefit either.
4: What we're hearing here, I think, is the perfect argument for directly elected mayors. And before I came to Ireland, I lived in London at the time the directly elected mayor was first introduced in London. And all of a sudden there was a focal point for arguments about London that previously were just not getting debated. At that time it was whether London should get a congestion charge. The electorate decided it, the candidates differed on it, and it was a great democratic event and we got a congestion charge. I mean, I think this is exactly it. I mean, you hear arguments about the direction that Dublin is going in at the moment, given the nature of the economy and the housing problem mm. and the kind of booming economy and the kind of multinational sector that we we have down in Docklands. And it gives a focus for that debate, for the different parts of the city to come together and say, you know, there are problems and issues here that we need to deal with and we want to hear views on and we want to be able to vote on. And I think it's a great argument for the directly elected mayor, so of which I'm a clear the,
0: supporter. I mean, I think we, it's just okay. more dem- democracy. Yeah, and we should we have our own Boris Johnson maybe in <laughs> in Dublin. Now, listen, another story that we didn't get to earlier, but that it is a massive story that that is still grinding on. Uh, Portugal Cage, you were looking at... Um, the business Post story about this rescue plan for for football, which would separate the grassroots out from uh, i guess the management of the of the national team. Can you explain to us what this plan is about and who's behind it?
2: yeah uh basically uh Niall Quinn and a few others appear to be uh, involved in this plan and and uh, putting this plan forward and the f a I have a meeting uh I think tomorrow morning with the Minister Shane Ross and with Brendan Griffin, the junior minister, in relation to uh the overall plan uh I think it's I think it's risky. I, I on the face of it, I wouldn't be in favour of it. It's creating a two-tier situation in relation to professionals and then totally separate the whole amateur game and uh, school boys and school girls game. Um, I would be quite concerned about it. I think there are better ways to but restructure you know, the you, FAI. Do you not
0: think rather than, than letting uh, d- Messing at the elite level drag down everything, there's clearly, there's clearly an issue now ab- among the grassroots getting the money and getting them the support they need and everything else. Is it, does it not make sense? Uh, to,
2: well, no, in fa- I, I don't believe that's the way to do it. In fairness to the minister, what he has done and he's working on this is actually pro- providing a facility whereby the grassroots, as you call it, they get the funding directly and it bypasses the FAI because the department and rightly so are afraid that it goes into this unholy big hole uh, of debt, yeah. or 55 million yeah, of a debt. and probably to 70, 70, exactly, according uh, to 70 could times. be 70 now. So actually, I actually think the FAI could restructure uh, to some degree, which would be... A little bit more like the like the GA, the way the GA is structured, not saying that's perfect, but in actual fact, what you'd have is you'd have a commercial side of it and you'd have a side in that's involved in the games and the games development side of it. You need those two separately. But I think there is a future for the FAI. And actually, what I'd like us to focus is on what the future is like, rather than saying, Going back over and back over the but is past, but it's
0: not focusing on what the future would be like. This uh, is a plan for the future, isn't it?
2: This is a plan for the future, but it's drawn in by the history of it. And quite okay. frankly, uh, us as politicians and the media, we sometimes focus too much on the past rather than focusing as uh, enough on the solution which we need to do more. Should
0: they get a government bailout? No. Okay, so how how do we solve the seventy million?
2: Well, uh, there's a couple of things. If you and, and I've, I've studied the account, you have in about detail. thirty seconds. All right.
0: <laughs>
5: <laughs>
2: Thirty I'm seconds to solve the seventy billion. <laughs> One is they own fifty percent of the Vivvy Stadium, that's worth in the region of three hundred million. If that was refinanced and restructured, they could restructure that and be paying back. Bank of Ireland is the biggest uh, 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 creditor there at the moment. Restructure that debt over a longer period of time. I need, I think they need more, a little bit more money from from the from the government, but certainly not a, not a bailout. And also, I think actually
0: they they need a good CEO. That's a big, okay. really, really important part of it. OK, thank you very much. Thanks to all my panel today. Uh, Colin Minogue was our broadcast coordinator today. Michelle Brown and Katrina McFadden are our researchers. Dave Gibson was on sound. Annette Egan produced. And our series producer is Rachel Graham. Enjoy the rest of your weekend and I'll talk to you soon.